You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. What comes to mind when you hear the word comfort? What comes to mind? For many modern people, this word conjures up a wide range of images and experiences. We talk about comfort food and the satisfaction that can come from a plate of fried chicken, a bowl of gumbo, or some meatloaf and mashed potatoes. We use the language of comfort zone to describe when we're in a place of familiarity and security. We use the language of creature comforts to describe the material items we think we need to feel happy and content. Advertisers use what they call comfort advertising to sell a wide range of products. You can go to the liquor store and get Southern comfort. (laughs) If you're traveling, you can stay in the Comfort Inn hotel. And when it's time to rest, you can lay down on the bed and cover up with a comforter. For many moderns, Comfort is putting your feet up after a hard day of work, sipping some wine, and enjoying a crackling fire in the fireplace. According to popular notions of comfort, comfort connects us to all that is warm, feel-good, nostalgic, and pleasing. And I say all this to make the point that our language around the subject of comfort reveals a shallowness. And the reason why this is a problem is because these shallow notions of comfort actually put us in a situation where comfort is always slipping through our fingers. The theme of comfort is all around us, and yet it feels elusive. Where do you turn for comfort? Where do you turn for comfort? This Advent season, the Grace DC Network pastors are going to be preaching through a series on Isaiah 40, a beautiful chapter of scripture that speaks to those who are living through the tensions and the trials and the heartaches and the difficulties of this world. It speaks to those who need comfort. And as we kick off our Advent series today, the prophet Isaiah gets us started with a word of comfort. And what we're going to see in this passage is this. If real comfort is going to come to us, then it must confront all that is wrong with life. Real comfort confronts all that is wrong with life. The evil, the sadness, the suffering, the anxieties, the tragedy. So let's approach our passage for this morning through two points as we consider the message of comfort and the ministry of comfort. The message and the ministry of comfort. So let's look at this first point where we see the message of comfort. Prophets in the Old Testament were known as covenant mediators. They were called to speak God's word to God's people to help them to live according to God's rule of life. 
And whenever a prophet arrived on the scene, typically it was because the people had departed from God's covenant, God's way of life. So the ministry of the prophet was often filled with warnings and threats of pending judgment to the Lord's disobedient people. The equivalent of a sign that says bridge ends in a thousand feet. Not God being mean, not God being a killjoy, but God giving his people a real warning about the consequences of their departure from him. It was an act of love. And it's in this place that Isaiah begins his engagement with God's people. Isaiah spends 39 chapters of his prophecy calling out the people's sin and disobedience, their departure from the covenant. Their disobedience and rebellion against God resulted in their exile from their homeland. The people of God were in the pit of despair, and any hopes that they had were hanging on by a thread. They were suffering tragedy, and they knew that everything they were going through, everything that was happening to them, was all their fault. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been in a situation where there's nobody else to blame? There's no one else to, to hang the responsibility on. You know that it's all your fault. This is where God's people found themselves. However, after trudging through 39 chapters that largely consist of judgment and threat, the reader catches a ray of light piercing through the black cloud of judgment. As Isaiah begins this 40th chapter, he leads off with good news. Look at verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Given what the people had done, given who they had become, this is an absolutely stunning shift in the prophetic message. And this shift is even more stunning in light of the ancient cultural backdrop. In both the Jewish and the pagan world at this time, it was considered the duty of relatives or neighbors to give comfort by visiting or if it was too far to travel, to write a letter of comfort. And many of the letters of comfort which have survived from that period suggest that the normal message that was sent to those who were disconsolate, to those who were mourning, was don't lament long. It was thought that lamenting is useless and that people should set an example by mourning for a short period. The disconsolate were encouraged in these letters to read philosophy and poetry. Sometimes diversions such as wine or song or even riddles were encouraged. Assurances of immortality or the peace of eternal nothingness were given to these people depending on the beliefs of the comforter. But when we search these ancient letters of comfort, what we learn is that hardly ever was prayer or reference made to the gods. Comfort was not regarded as a divine function, and no pagan deity was associated with the work of comforting their devotees. 
The idea of a God who comforts was virtually unknown in the pagan world. Do you see it? In the context of Israel's sin and rebellion, in a context where no other deity claimed any desire or willingness to comfort their devotees, the Lord tells his messengers in the most emphatic language, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Do you hear the covenant language? My people, says your God. Earlier in the prophecy, he said that people, those people, because they were living like a people outside the covenant. But here he returns and says, they may have walked away from the covenant, but I haven't. It's no mistake then that Isaiah throughout his entire prophecy calls the Lord the Holy One of Israel. To say that God is holy is to say that there's nobody like him. He is utterly unique. Nobody loves like he loves. Nobody cares like he cares. And nobody comforts like he comforts. Up till this point, Israel had tried to find comfort in every other place. They were looking for love in all the wrong places. Or Wook and Penub, if y'all know. <laughs> I knew I could get one with the diet. <laughs> if you read the first 39 chapters of Isaiah's prophecy, along with Isaiah's prophetic contemporaries, you can see that God's people had turned to false gods and idols, but they found no comfort. They turned to sexual encounters, but they found no comfort. They turned to riches and were willing to trample on the vulnerable in order to get material wealth, but they found no comfort. And if none of these things worked to comfort them, what makes us think that these things are going to comfort us? The Lord expresses his desire to comfort his people, but he also gives direction on the specific message that will actually comfort his people. Look at verse 2. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. In this message, we can see the central components of real comfort. And let's walk through this. We're going to unpack this. We begin with speak tenderly to Jerusalem. In the Hebrew text, it literally says, speak to the heart of Jerusalem. The first component of real comfort is that it must address the heart. And this is where our modern search for comfort runs aground. We often try to address heart wounds with surface level treatments. At a most basic level, if your treatment doesn't address the tangled mess within the heart, it will not give you lasting comfort. It will at best be a temporary diversion. That's like taping an aspirin to your forehead when you got a headache. It won't do you any good unless it gets in. And we must recognize the difference between being comfortable and being comforted. There's a difference there. Sometimes we confuse the two. 
Being comforted is all around. It's all about your environmental situation. It's about your circumstance. But being comforted is a heart-level reality, and you can be comforted in a variety of situations and circumstances. We know this to be true. Don't confuse being comfortable with being comforted, because all through God's story, he puts his people in uncomfortable situations, but yet still he gives them his comfort that helps them to endure and do his work. We see here that real comfort speaks to the heart. Next, the text says, and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Israel tried to fight off larger surrounding nations that were squeezing in on them for years and years. But this only resulted in defeat and exile. Have you ever been on a long work trip and had the feeling, man, I just can't wait to get back home? Well, could you imagine being forcibly taken from your home without any real sign that you would ever be able to return? Could you imagine the longing that you would have? That was Israel's situation. But the theme of exile in Scripture goes beyond physical estrangement from your homeland. It goes beyond physical estrangement from your place. It extends to describe life apart from God, who is our true home. This is something of the theme that we get in the story of the prodigal sons. When the younger son goes off into the far country, he wants to get out from underneath the rule of his father. He wants to have some version of the freedom that he has in his head. And he takes his inheritance and he bolts to live life on his own. This is a pretty perfect description of modern people. We want to pursue our pleasures in utter autonomy. We have lived with the mistaken notion that we're always inevitably making progress without reference to God. And yet the social scientific data and the daily news tells a different story, doesn't it? It really flies in the face of that idea that we're on a continual journey of progress. We are actually exiled from our true home. But we see here that real comfort calls us out of exile. Next, he says, and cried to her that her iniquity is pardoned. Now, this is a jaw-dropping message in light of what we've discussed about what God's people had done and who they had become. The people were loaded down with sin. And this was the entire reason why they were in this situation in the first place. But over all the sin, over all the failure, over all the missteps, misdeeds, and mistakes, the Lord speaks a word of pardon. In our modern age, we wrestle with guilt and shame quite a bit, don't we? Shame may be a little bit more pronounced in our current moment, but if we quiet ourselves for any length of time and we listen to what's going on underneath, we still bear a lot of guilt that creates discomfort. There's really nothing we can't feel guilty about. We feel guilty about food. 
we ate too many calories, or maybe you went on a midnight shame-eating binge at McDonald's. I know I'm not the only one up in here, <laughs> except I'm not ashamed. <laughs> Something as simple as food can introduce shame into our lives. Money, how much we make, how much we spend, how much we give or don't give, what we buy, what we possess. Money creates guilt. Relationships create guilt. When we say the wrong thing and we hurt a friend, and then when we follow that up with avoiding that friend because we don't want to face our failure. Not calling enough the people we care about. Not responding to texts or calls. Forgetting important dates like birthdays and anniversaries. This creates guilt. Our spirituality creates guilt. No matter what our version of spirituality may be. We feel a sense of guilt because of our performance. We feel guilty when we don't show up like we know we're supposed to. We feel guilty when we're absent-minded about our spiritual commitments. We feel guilty when we fail to live up to standards. We feel guilty when we recognize the hypocrisy in our lives. We see that real comfort must address our guilt. Not by stuffing it, not pretending that guilt is an illusion, not by trying to, to bury it, but by pardoning the sin that made us guilty in the first place. Next, we see that Isaiah moves on, the Lord moves on and says, and cry to her that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. This is a way of saying that the just judgment that has fallen upon them is completed. Judgment is satisfied. It's over. There's no more divine judgment hanging over them. And what's interesting about modern people is that we really have no tolerance for judgment from our peers, right? We will cancel people we deem judgmental in a heartbeat. However, many modern people fail to connect the dots. If we have a hard time with the judgment that we face from peers or people on social media that we don't even know, how do we suppose we will be able to face the judgment of a holy God who sees and knows everything we've done, everything we've said, and everything we've thought? It is a most discomforting thought that I will be held accountable by God for the life I've lived. This is one of the messages of Advent. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. And yet, what is clear in this passage is that if God could speak these words of comfort over Israel in the midst of her sins, then he can do the same for us. The final component of real comfort is that it lifts the crushing weight of just judgment that hangs over us. God's message of comfort hits home like nothing else and no one else can because it speaks to the heart, it calls us out of exile, it addresses our guilt, and it lifts the judgment that hangs over our life. 
And here's the deal. If any of these components is missing, whatever you think is comfort is merely an illusion. It's a diversion. We need to hear the message of comfort. But it does raise a question. How does this comfort become real for us? We hear the word that Isaiah is speaking, the Lord is speaking through Isaiah to Israel. But how does it become real for you and me? The answer to that question is through the gospel. In his first advent, Jesus Christ came into this world not only as a messenger from God, but as the Messiah of God. The king who could affect the comfort that he proclaimed over his people. Jesus is able to give real comfort because he speaks to our hearts. Everything our hearts have ever longed for is found in him, and he freely gives himself to us. Jesus calls us out of exile just as powerfully as he called Lazarus out of the grave. And in the gospel, Jesus willingly submits to exile so that he can bring you and I home to the Father's love. In the gospel, Jesus addresses our guilt by bearing it for us. He takes the cross and gives us his comfort. What can comfort you more than the truth that Jesus knew all of the ways you would ever sin, rebel, fail, and fall, and yet he still came for you? He still abides with you. He still fights for you. And he ever lives to pray for you. That's real comfort. And finally, Jesus is able to make his comfort real to us because he lifts the just judgment that hangs over our lives. He lifts that just judgment by absorbing it for us. In fact, Isaiah tells us only a few chapters later, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Nothing and nobody can comfort like Jesus. And when Jesus comforts you, then he gives you the ministry of comfort. Which brings us to our second point. The ministry of comfort. Verses 3 through 5 read like this. Look at the text. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh together shall see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. On the very first page of Mark's gospel, the evangelist quotes this verse. And then he applies it to the ministry of John the baptizer. John engaged the people of his place. And, and he prepared the way for the Lord, for the coming Messiah. In Isaiah's context, we have a dual image going on here. Not only of a highway for God to come to his people, 
but that same highway becomes the road by which his people make it out of Egypt. Egypt, which at this time was the Babylonian captivity. And when you understand the, the, the context of Isaiah and how it leads forward to John the Baptist, it then begins to give us an understanding of our ministry. We are called to prepare the way for the Lord. And how, how does that take shape? What does that look like? First, you've got to start with yourself. And it starts with repentance. Not playing church. Not showing up every once in a while just so you can show your face and so that maybe no one will suspect that you're living way outside the life that is in Christ Jesus. Repentance, identifying your sins, naming them, lamenting over them, which is the sign that you really understand that it's not just about breaking God's law. It is about breaking God's heart. The God who has loved you so, living contrary to the life that he has called you into. Repentance. You can prepare by telling the truth about your wilderness trials. Stop doing this when people ask you how you're doing. Oh, I'm fine, everything's good. That's not true. A lot of the time, right? It's not true. And what you do is you rob the Lord of his glory. Because when he delivers you from whatever you're facing, no one ever knows it. Because they didn't know you were in trouble in the first place. No, that the, the, the soul that is shaped by Advent is able to name the wilderness trials. But with expectant hope that God is going to do something about it. Because God has, in fact, already done something about it. We're able to name the wilderness trials. We prepare ourselves by resisting busyness. Because busyness is just a way of allowing your heart to get cluttered. And when your heart gets cluttered, you start to ignore important things. You stop hearing the Lord's voice. His voice gets drowned out by all the other voices. Resist busyness. Get in the word. Meditate and pray through the word. If you need to go back and revisit the sermon that we had on Psalm 1, in our For the Life of the World series, I commend that to you, where we talked about meditation. This is how we prepare the way for the Lord, for the Lord to draw near to us, for the Lord to find a, a heart that is ready to receive him. And finally, I would say sing. Sing. Sing your worship to the Lord. Lift your heart to him. Even if it's just a joyful noise, make that noise and tune your heart to sing his praise. We start with ourselves, but then we begin to prepare the way for the Lord by engaging with our neighbors, showing up in their lives, being interested and curious, being good listeners, and remembering what they shared with us so that we can follow up with them and demonstrate a real love and concern for their well-being. The ministry of comfort is a ministry of presence. We prepare the way for the Lord by speaking up. The ministry of comfort is a ministry of truth-telling. John the baptizer went out there and called people to repentance. He said, you're living foul. This life is not going to bring you joy. 
This life that you're living is ultimately going to yield death. Repent and believe the gospel. Truth-telling. We prepare the way for the Lord by preparing our tables for our neighbors. The ministry of comfort is a ministry of hospitality. We prepare the way for the Lord by doing all the good we can, by all the means we can, in all the ways we can, in all the places we can, at all times we can, to all the people we can, for as long as we can, says John Wesley. We prepare the way for the Lord by sharing our testimony concerning the comfort that God has given to us. And finally, we prepare the way for the Lord through the work of prayer. Like the friends of the paralytic in the Gospels, we carry our neighbors and our family members and our co-workers to Jesus in prayer. And we pray prayers like this. May their false comforts and discomforts lead them to real comfort by faith in Christ. The Gospel redefines our whole way of thinking about comfort. On this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ... God's people know that comfort food is found at the Lord's table. We know that the only real comfort zone is being in Christ. We know that creature comfort can only come from the hand of the creature's creator. We see the preaching of the gospel as real comfort advertising. You might be able to get southern comfort down on the corner, but Jesus is bringing global comfort at his second coming. And on that day of his return, Jesus will book our permanent stay in the real comfort in the kingdom of God. And if you want to rest from your pretending and performing, you can cover up with the righteousness of this comforter. The glory of the Lord has been revealed. So let us join the Apostle Paul in blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Amen. Let's pray. for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.